Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Now, imagine it was full of highlights and notes in the margin, and you could see how this book has transformed someone's heart. This is the Notable Podcast. These are discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 8, a podcast on Genesis 12 through 25 and the life of Abraham. Well, Jonathan, uh, we are back <laughs> for another round of the Notable Podcast. Not notable because anything what we say, but because we're just making notes in the margins of our Bibles. And we are in the middle of our series, our season eight, which is Genesis 12 to 25, really Genesis 11 to 25, the end of it, to 25. <laughs> We're moving into an incredible, uh, powerful section, Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to cover the whole thing. Um, scripture is just such an amazing thing, and I think that's one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is just show to people that anyone who's willing to listen, that this is scripture runs deep and Nowhere does that become more true, really, than in this word. Like, we're going to meet this stranger who we don't know if he had any role in the battle at all. This king, Melchizedek, he's going to be whisked onto the pages of scripture and whisked right back off. But wow, does he become a big deal later? (laughs) So it kind of begs the question is like, when we read Genesis 14 and all of scripture really is what is there for me and how can I see Christ as the writer of the Hebrews later develops Melchizedek um, as a type of Christ. But um, I'm excited to, to hear um, what you have, your thoughts, Jonathan, and just to get into this word today. I got a, I got a quote just to, put an exclamation point on what you said. This is the quote from Gregory the Great. He once said, scripture is like a river, shallow enough for the lamb to wade, deep enough for the elephant to swim. And that that reminds us that um, it's shallow enough that we can go and play in it like a splash pad, (laughs) but it's deep enough so that I think we never want to get out. And I, I, like you said, you, you referenced Melchizedek and the, the infinite depth there that, that we find finally adds up to Christ. Um, I'd simply point out this, that here we have this, we have a, a pretty magnificent chapter. Um, got 20, 24 verses here that we're going to be covering here in Genesis chapter 14 that are largely neglected. You know, you have, um, the story of Abram and Lot separating. I think I remember getting that in Sunday school at some point in my life. Um, but I don't think I ever got this story. I don't think I ever got this story, Timothy. Um, and then I also got Genesis 15. So there's a Genesis 14 is often treated as a gap. Like people just skip it. Um, and all of a sudden you're getting, Abram's getting this vision um, where we find out that he's actually afraid when in Genesis 14, he's not afraid at all. (laughs) And there's, there's some tension there um, and some depth there that we just need to get into. And I, I think Timothy, what we should do is just take this in chunks Um, just for our listeners. um, I think the way that we can do this is, well, um, first of all, we got what appear to be three different battle scenes um, if we, if I could put it like that. And so we'll track the, the, the battle scenes, but then we're going to un- unpack with Moses um, the way that he brings spirituality to, to these scenes. Um, and so that's the basic framework of what we're going to be doing today. 
And what we need to do is, is I think, just start on the top end of these verses and uh, maybe just read this, this incredible battle account. Um, and again, we can think of this as a war. Like, here's three battles that, that mount up to one war, um, if we could package it like that. But here's the first, here's the first battle. Yeah, so do you, should, I, should I read it to you? Yeah, read it. Yes, so here we go. And, and this is, just to set the stage, this is the first recorded war scene in, in the entire Bible. <laughs> it's a big deal. Like we get, Genesis is, <laughs> it means beginnings, and this is the beginning of human warfare. So here we go. At, that, at the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketaleomor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemebar, king of Zeboin, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Ketaleomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Yeah, don't, don't be bored. Do not be bored at all with this. This is, a, I had one teacher who likened this to um, the first record of, of a world war. And this is a, this is a big, these are massive international powers here. Uh, you will notice in the translation that Amraphel is the king of Shinar. Don't forget that this is Babylon. This is the big, you know, this is where the Assyrians are, the Babylonians, the, the Medes and Persians. This is a massive international capital. Um, and so this, it's not an overstatement to say that this, this really is a world war um, that's starting here. And, and we're told enough about it to, to, to know that that's exactly what it is. You have, you have kings on the west and then you have the kings on the east, four against five, five against four. Um, that's how that works. And uh, Ketalormer, um, is, is the he's the head um, nation state power. And uh, you had these five vassal kings um, who rebel. Um, it does seem apparent, based on what we know about Sodom, that um, these smaller kings, these smaller kingdoms, um, had nice chunks of land. You know, they there was irrigation, and there's animals, and there's prosperity, and they're thinking we just want to keep it all for ourselves. We don't we don't want to pay tribute to um, Ketalomer anymore, and so they rebel. And uh, here we get a battle. We get this battle described where they're put down. They're put down. They're immediately put down. Ketalomer, he comes in with his allies. Boom. It's over. <laughs> Puts them <Yeah>. down. <laughs> it's, a, it's just such a huge, almost shocking thing on the pages of Scripture to, to see it actually come about. War is always such a shocking thing. And then here it is. God, God's perfect world. That's how the, the scriptures begin. And now here we are um, fighting over resources. Like <laughs> we just saw um, Abram so generously give, give them away. Uh, that's not what's happening here. It is, it is a shocking thing though, Timothy, in the sense that we, here we are, we're tracking the Abram narrative. Remember we're in the Terra Toledot. And all of a sudden you have international affairs. And this is just like our lives. International affairs just explode into the life of Abram. Now we're not going to know why yet. Like you notice that there's this incredible juxtaposition um, between the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. All of a sudden international affairs um, explode in the scene. And we don't know why yet, Timothy. We actually have been told in the narrative why. why. We're, we're Hopefully we're kind of like, on bay, we're waiting on bated breath. Why are we being told about um, this world war that's that's going on? So we have to keep reading here, and we're gonna we're gonna get another set of battles that 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 constitutes um, sort of a um, yeah a war a, another war account here. And this is now verses eight, um, excuse me, verses five, um, five through um, 
really 12. All right, so let me read those real quick for anyone who's listening out there. In the 14th year, Ketelamur and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in the Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zezites in Ham, the Emites in Shevakiriathiam, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as the El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpah, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. When the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Ketelamur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fell into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot in his possession since he was living in Sodom. Okay, so we find out why these international, uh, more cosmic affairs um, are reported to us in the Abram narrative. It does immediately touch Abram's life with Lot. We're going to talk about that more. But for right now, let's just talk about this campaign. We do have this campaign reported. Um, the world's greatest powers put down um, the vassals. But Timothy, they weren't done. Mm. They were not done. <laughs> and so Cataloomer says, "If you, now, Timothy, if this was our full-time job, like just podcasting, we'd put up a sweet graphic and we do all this stuff and mm. show you a map of the conquest and stuff. It'd be like cool that. to see like, like the board game yeah. risk or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but what, so we, this isn't our full-time job. We're pastors. So uh, what, what we can tell you is the news Titans, the news Titans. And you, you notice that these Kings um, come in and they're putting down all the tribes. They're just, the news is tightening, the news is tightening. They're putting putting down all the tribes around um, Sodom, okay? You, you almost wish, like, it was one of those history channel things where you can, like, World War II and full yeah. color or whatever, and you can see the advance of Hitler and stuff, and you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. But the narrative, it, the, Moses is brilliant. This is What he's doing is he's, if you read it carefully, what he's doing is, He's giving you the experience of the approach of Ketelomer and the other kings. They're coming closer and closer and closer. They're, they're just, they're conquesting everybody. They're wiping everybody out. And what's now, what's interesting about this is Sodom does nothing, Timothy. They don't come out. They don't uh, stand up. They are, they are so, it, you know, when you read it, but... Excuse me. Ooh, excuse me. I'm really sorry about that. Take that out of the podcast. <laughs> but they uh, they get closer and closer and closer, and the Sodomites do nothing. They're not going to come out and face the other kings. They're not going to stand up. And in fact, you know, what's reported is that the battle commences, and everybody runs. <laughs> It's amazing. So they're thing. watching these approaching armies and everybody's quaking in their boots. Finally, there's a battle scene. The soldiers run away and the kings jump, jump in tar pits. Now we can also be thinking of bitumen or asphalt. And so the king of Sodom jumps in a tar pit. Okay. Remember that because we're going to see the king of Sodom come back later. Um, but that's what happens. They don't stand up. They are completely conquested. And as a part of that, we find out, Timothy, and this is not just a little detail, that Lot had moved into the city of Sodom. Before, right. in chapter 13, we, he was tenting outside of Sodom. Now he's inside of Sodom, and he gets conquested, and he gets taken away with all the other goods. 
with all the other people in good. Enter our next battle scene. Battle scene number three. <laughs> yeah. So what, this is such a this is such an incredible story. Like just to see. Can you imagine? It's hard for us as Americans to even imagine it, but if we can at least spiritually kind of digest this and think about the noose tightening, like the fear that must have been rising uh, in that country. I mean, we've lived quite a while on planet Earth and in the United States of America, and we've never actually had um, minus terrorism war in our country. But this is Abrams um, experience that lot is, and uh, he's going to get drawn in now. So let, let me just read this for you. And, and, and remember, Timothy, like, here's the contrast. Sodom immediately capitulates. They totally capitulate. And then there's Abram. Mm. All right. So here it goes. This is verse 13 now. And we're going to go through 16. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Oh, we got to talk about him later. So good. Yeah. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. I hope we I hope we ramp this up enough. You know, like the text, just if you just look at it in the Bible here, we have a massive, we got 16 verses that are trying to help us ask the question, what is this nomadic tenting Abram? We have no hints of his military abilities, prowess, capabilities, resources, nothing. What is this nomadic believer? going to do against international superpowers i mean what's he going to do it's 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 a it's a crazy mismatch it, this is a lot of viral commentators are going to talk about how gideon uh, and and his battle is is so similar here like you get 318 guys and you, you have to like what some commentators will try to downplay this and they'll say well it, you know, Abram just went after sort of like the back end of, of these armies. Doesn't say that anywhere in the text. But they just can't imagine that Abram would be successful against these um, incredibly powerful conquesting armies. But that's exactly what the text says. He's got three, eight, 318 guys. Now, I'll also point out to you that he has allies. You know, he does have allies. We find that out. He's got Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre. So he's got his three eight, 318 guys. They have their guys, and they're all under the uh, under the umbrella of Abram. And it, it's amazing because he doesn't he doesn't stop. He fights without a second thought. Thought he ups, um, he gets them up, and he's he's going after Lot, and he comes up with his strategy. Says this is what we're going to do. We're going to split up the guys. Um, we're going to attack at night. We're going to go for a confusion. And then by God, and I say that with meaning, by God, it works. And he comes away with everything. So we got this, like, this is the account, right? Like, just think about it. Like, these, these, these conquesting armies put down everybody. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Except Abram. <laughs> it's it's just you know who knew that he was like a navy seal commander like yeah general an ancient version of general washington or, or something like that but here here he is and it's almost like it, it's so breathless the the account like here's this guy he's running up to abram and he's like they took it all they're all gone 
and Abram's probably asking questions. What about Lot? What about Lot? What about Lot? And sure enough, he's drawn to the battle because of Lot. And he doesn't have to think about it. He calls his allies. He gets his guys together and he's off. He's off to, to fight. Now, we got to talk about this because this is the first war in the Bible. And the Old Testament presents some pretty interesting opportunities to think about the place of war. Uh, it's the morality of war. What do Christian people do when they're confronted with war? So, you know, all of these things this is the first time where you get to you, you get to do some theology um, on this and, and probably modern day commentators and philosophers will talk about just wars. So I think, Jonathan, you had some stuff on that. What what do we want yeah. to talk about? We got Ukraine, Russia, all kinds of stuff happening. What are what do we need to say about this? So there's a lot to say about it. Let me set up what I'm going to say like this. First of all, this account is not, it's not a manual on how to wage war. It's not a manual for that. Uh, we're going to end up talking about um, spiritual warfare out of this text. Um, because what, what, what we're going to say is that this really isn't about Abram's war prowess. What it's about is where his bravery, his courage, and his victory come from. So we're going to end up talking about its spirituality. That's really where the text goes. But it, we we do have Abram fighting a war, and um, this is you know some people are complete pacifists, and they claim that Christians are complete pacifists. Not true. Our Father in the faith is not a pacifist. Now, um, this is where, like you say, Christians have developed theology out of the scriptures to help us think about what kind of wars are, 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 are wars that Christians are fighting, would fight in. And this is what we call just war theory. Um, Timothy, we'd have to do hours long podcasts to talk hours. about it. But I, hours. I probably still wouldn't settle it. But I want to say, I, I want to just build just a little bit um, out some of some just war theory, um, the way the church fathers have done it. Um, and to st start with Augustine, uh, Augustine um, says that just war is, he calls it a harsh kindness. So when you go to war against somebody, the goal of the war, and this is what would make it just, is that it, it's to bring repentance and restoration of the moral order. So that that would be the goal of a, of a truly just war is to is to call people to repentance, but then also to restore things to the way that they're supposed to be. Another theologian built on Augustine's insight there, and what he said. So, uh, uh, like, okay, but what if I don't really know um, if this is if if that's what the war is about? What what? And Gratian said a soldier can fight in a war, as long as um, it's not apparent that the war is unjust. If it becomes apparent that the war is just about money or um, colonization or something like that, then a soldier couldn't in good conscience fight. But as long as it, the injustice of the war is not apparent to the soldier, they can they can engage in the conflict in good conscience. That's what, what um, Gratian said. Now, I wanna also, I wanna also nuance this a little bit. Um, a lot of modern Americans think of, of, of war um, based on what happened in the Civil War. So it used to be, keep in mind that war used to be, um, used to get spectators. It was, it really did. This is why um, mm. I think it was at Gettysburg. Um, people actually pulled up kind of lawn chairs and blankets and stuff like that. And they're watching this thing. Um, and that was because it was waged in a different way, way until finally in, in, in the Civil War, um, we, we got something called total war, where people are just devastating and killing and um, everything. And that's where Sherman said war is hell. So historically, war hasn't, hasn't been like that. It's been waged in another way. Aquinas then said that war should be waged for the common good. Um, it shouldn't be selfish. And then a guy named Victoria, 
um, he can, he's going to, he gives, he helps us think about Abram here. And this is I'm building out some just war thoughts here. But he said that, that war um, must be waged only after wise counsel. And then he said war can, can either be defensive or offensive. So here um, he said war may be waged to recover possession. He also said it can also be waged to avenge losses. So um, Abram would fit in, in the defensive war um, of a just war. He is going to get Lot back. So this, it would, it, according to Victoria's theology, Abram is waging a just war. He is going to get Lot and to get Lot back. And that's going to become very clear as the account progresses. So there's just a little uh, bit of, of just war theory. Um, for our listeners, yeah, and I I appreciate that. I it this is a this is a thing that could fill uh, a book thousands of pages long about just just war theory and war convention and and um, international law, and that we're not really here to do that, but I think we are here to say that a, a soldier today might look at this text and say um in in certain circumstances like where my family's threatened or my country is threatened by those who want to steal its resources i can fight and i can fight in good conscience i think that's that's really the big point here that um abram god God puts his hand on, and we're going to see this in a second, Abram's actions here. And um, in a sense, he justifies it, if we could say it that way, because we're talking about a just war. But, but, but now, here's the move we got to make, is we're going to, we're, we don't want to spiritualize, this is a real war, and we're not trying to spiritualize that. The point here is later in the chapter, we're going to find out that all of Abram's actions are driven by his spirituality. That's where his courage comes from. Um, that's where his blessing comes from. All of that. And so that's where we can start talking about the spiritual wars that um, Abram um, really had, had, had fought and he won in his heart to do a real battle. And that's what we can, we can start with in the text. And the first thing that, that I think we can notice um, is, is just talk about the battle for love, Timothy, the battle for love. Now, this is where doing a podcast like this is really fun and doing a sermon series on it is also fun. Because last time, you know, Timothy, we saw at, at the very best, we saw Lat be, Lat be complete brat. And it's probably worse than that. I'm happy to take the best land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and we talked about that last time. But why do we think about think about this? Like normally when we fight for somebody, right? It's because they're worthwhile to us. It's because um we think they deserve it. Like if they're deserving enough um and they mean enough to us, then we'll fight for them. Here we got Lot, who has been hanging on to Abram's coattails this whole time. We brought him up, and we've said that. And here, it, and he does everything wrong. You know, he's he acts like a brat, and that's being nice. It's being charitable a lot. And yet, when when Lot is in in, in danger, Abram drops everything at the drop of a hat and gives his life away. Mm, he risks that's everything. Love. Yeah. That's love. It's so pure, Timothy. It's it's so pure. Abram fights for Lot. And, and Timothy, if I could, like, I, I hope we built this up enough, but he does it at great risk to himself. Yeah. And his family, like Ketaleomer could have came blown back in and blown the whole thing out. He would have been he would have been better off, like personally just uh, passively letting the world shift around him. Hey, Lot got taken captive. At least he's not dead. <laughs> he's just relocated. And uh, 
That's not what he does. That's not what he does. Deep love. So, <laughs> so what's worth fighting for? Like, what's what's the fight in life? What is your fight in life? The fight is for love. That's what Abram shows us here. The fight's for love. It's not. It's not for land. It's for love. And in fact, um, just to lean into this one a little bit more, you realize Abram has won a massive victory, and the the, the he he could have he had he could have kept going with his sword and done his own little conquest <laughs> right after Catalomer, right after he beat Catalomer and kicked him out of Dodge. He doesn't. He drops his sword. The only thing that Abram fights for is for love. I mean, does that make you think of anybody? <laughs> it, yeah. It makes you like, whoa. What does it mean to be a Christian? And more than that, why is it that we can say that Jesus is the greater son, but still the son of Abram? What does he fight for? Greater, it's, it sounds like you're doing John for a second. Greater love has no one in this that he laid down his life for his friend. I think it's a helpful meditation too. Like, you, you got to know. You got to know who is it that you would die for. That's kind of what we're up against. Abram gets this breathless report and there's no wringing his hands over it. There's there's no, let me just pray on this for a little bit. He just acts. He knows what he's got to do. He knows what he has to do. And it's. I think it's helpful for all of us to think about who we would be willing to do that for. And go to the mat for, and then it, and then back that out to less extreme situations too. Like, if you'd be willing to die for that person, like let's say it's your wife or whatever, then why can't you give her the remote control? You know, like even sometimes I think like we um, sensationalize these things and um, push them right to the hilt so hard that. Um, we don't realize that what love really is, is daily sacrificially living every single day. And if you can romanticize one big act of self-sacrifice like this, then um, we should probably be able to argue down to the lesser that, that we can probably then do the dishes. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I heard a quote from somebody, I can't credit it correctly, but I heard a quote or read it somewhere that the easy thing, like you say, is is to give your life away in one big act. The hard thing is to do it in small amounts over your entire life. Um, either way, you have Abram giving his life away to someone who doesn't deserve it. And that is the most miraculous thing in the world, Timothy. To give your life, to let, to give it away, and to be willing to do it for somebody who's really not worth it. Lot's only been trouble for him, and he loved him. Yeah, but now Christ-like love. Yeah. What? What'd you now say? Sorry. Well, now we got it. We got to make one. We got to make another. Because we're talking about this spiritually speaking. What's going on here with Abram? There's, there's this is a fight for love. That's what it is. He loves him, cares about him. But here's the second thing, and I think this is a, just this is uh, love is 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 the king of the virtues. There's no doubt about it. But let's talk about another virtue. Ready? Let's talk about courage. Oh, I love it. <laughs> this is and very, it's, I, and it's opposite, which would be cowardice. Right. You know. We could go the whole Wizard of Oz too. Like, it's not the Tin Man. His head is empty, right? It's the it's the lion. <laughs> yeah. Look at the text, though. This is where I want to draw this out of the text, and then Timothy, you got it. I'm going to let you loose on it. Look at the text, okay? So in the text, we got we got sodomites who, at the least threat of war, um, they're out. 
they're running for the hills. And the king of Sodom, super shameful thing. He jumps in a tar pit. Hilarious, if you think about it. Like the scene, um, he just jumps in the tar pit. <laughs> and uh, we, we got to, I don't want to get into this quite yet, but I, I want to just note this. Um, I'm, as a commentator, I'm not alone noting where this comes from. Remember, what are sodomites about? They're about materialism, their comfort, and their own exploitation. Um, if I could wrap it up in one term, what we would say about the sodomites is they are decadent. They are culturally decadent. All they want to be is comfortable. And the minute they are confronted with something hard and with war, they surrendered. They completely, well, they didn't surrender. They capitulated is what they did. Meanwhile, and here's the comparison. Meanwhile, Abram gets word of this. And I want to point this out. I love this, Timothy. We get this unnamed guy, this war escapee, and he runs to Abram and he says, you know, I don't know exactly what he says, but he, he gives the report and he finds out lots of POWs, you know, why? And, and everybody talks about this um, and they're right to talk about it. Why in the world do we get this unnamed guy run to Abram for help? Why does he go to Abram? Why does he go to Abram? The answer couldn't be more couldn't be more obvious because a he knew that Abram might just help. In other words, like this was this was not like um, a one-off event of bravery and love. This unnamed guy is thinking, you know what? Maybe Abram will do something about this war tragedy. Maybe Abram will actually show up. It's an amazing character sketch of um, who the father of our faith really is. Well, it's, you set me up perfectly for this. And this is what I want to say is like, I think everyone, I'm sitting here, you're sitting here. People are listening to this, hopefully. <laughs> and we're all thinking to ourselves, I'm not a coward. You know, I'll, I'll run through a rain of bullets. You know, like bring it on. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe there is someone out there thinking that they are. I I I don't know. Um, I'm thinking that most people picture themselves as heroes. Uh, but what they don't realize is that courage and bravery is something that's uh practiced every single day. And it has to be practiced every single day because Deep, deep, deep down, what we really want to be is scared. What we really want to be is to run away. And that is not the spirit that God gave, like it says in Second Timothy. The spirit that God gave is one of power and love and self-discipline, not a spirit of cowardice. And um, so I think there's room, like, it, you know, I, I don't want to critique the moment that we're living in too harshly, but I wonder, I'm just going to wonder out loud with you, Jonathan, if we, we've lost, lost our toughness, we've lost our resiliency, like the fight has gone out of us a little bit. And at least, at least Abram shows us a different way that every day he was living with toughness and bravery and kindness and power in such a way that someone wanted to run to him for help. Right. You know, Timothy, we don't have to be the ones that critique the culture. There's plenty of people who have done cultural analysis and, and people can, people can disagree with them, but um, there's a reason why um, like one analyst says that we're living today in culturally decadent times. Um, if you look at like, for example, look at how, um, things have developed. Um, 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were truly life, you know, life-altering things that were happening. We're getting planes off the ground. We're, um, we had the rise of the automobile, things like that, truly life-changing things. 
And I, I, not to be trite about this, but what did what did we get in the 2000s? The iPhone, you know, like it's it's very different. Very, we got Zoom, you know. Uh, we used to get airplanes, you know. It's uh, <laughs> so people people, you know, that's not that's not my critique. Those are those are other people's critiques. Um, look at look at our um, cultural production or some of our cultural artifacts. It's interesting, like people have pointed out, like, what's the big movie this year? Top Gun. <laughs> we can't, you know, Top Gun. It's making all this money at the box office. And and uh, why? Why is that? Like, because nobody has any good ideas anymore. Like, that's what cultural commentators will say. Like, we're going we're just going back to Top Gun. And um, so we people will look at that and they'll say our culture is um, decadent. And one one more comment about it that people have pointed out is like, and this isn't me, um, but if you think about it, people who quit are now lionized and praised. Very different. We used to like we used to say, here's somebody who persevered, here's somebody who has grit, and you know they got interviewed on the major networks and all this stuff, and pictures of them. Now today, it's the people who quit who couldn't do it. And we say, good for them. Um, they knew their stopping point. It's very different. And um, it's it's not wrong to notice that. The point here is that Christians, Christians have a different spiritual DNA. We are not quitters by the spirit of God. We are courageous people who move into real spiritual and sometimes physical battles. It's it's well said. I I like to think about that verse, it, it, in Isaiah chapter forty, where it, it describes who God is, and God is described tenderly there, like He's a loving Father, but He's also fierce, and to become more in His image is is to become more like Abram is here. He was tender enough to know that the guy could go to him, but he was fierce enough to know that when there's enemies out there, he was going to do something about it and tough enough too. So to have um, the Navy SEAL dad who comes home and scoops up his daughter, but who also knows how to use a machine gun is, um, you know, in the right circumstances, a, a really godly thing. When we, we're, we need to talk about why Christians are so courageous in just a second. Because that why we have the spiritual DNA. But I want to close like this on, on this point. And if you want to say something more, go ahead. But on the father of our faith, Abram, does a Navy SEAL attack. And it wasn't all that long ago, Timothy, where um, one, of the, one of the biggest stories uh, in the United States was, was a guy on, on uh, Flight 93. And um, he prayed with his kids and his wife uh, before the flight. He gets on the flight. He tries to call, tries to call his, his, his wife when he, when he realizes the plane has been hijacked. Um, and he gets a hold of a woman named Lisa Jefferson. And he asks this woman to pray the Lord's Prayer with him. And then... And, you know, and everybody knows the story, right? Um, here's this Christian man. Why was he able to do this? But he says, uh, we hear this over the phone. Are you guys ready? Then let's roll. And that plane never made it where it was supposed to go. And how many lives did that brave man, that brave Christian man save? Um, you just think about that. Like, this is this is what it means to be a Christian. Like, we're, we, we have incredible incredible bravery um, in the face of incredible fears. Um, Abram and um, the man there on uh, Flight 93 as well. You know, not to, not to jump ahead a little bit, but this is living out of the resurrection. 100%. Yes. But, but maybe we should talk about that in a second. But it's just such a powerful position to enter into these kinds of situations, knowing that, hey, um, if I don't make it, <laughs> no big loss for me, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, 
we got to read the rest of this, this verse. We got to we got to read the rest of it because exactly. the, the end. This is the big commentary on it in some ways. Yes. So it, it is. says it's this big scene. Like we can set the scene. Everybody's coming together. The victors are are dividing the spoils, and uh, there's Abram in the middle of it all. So here we go. It's verse seventeen. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High was delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anna, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. That's the end of the story. Mm. So uh, let me do a couple little bits of analysis. Like one of the things that you can see in the Hebrew is that um, the king of Sodom comes out and that that Hebrew language is repeated here. So he's coming out. And there's a there's a sense here that um, he's he's not really in league with Abram here. <laughs> um, whereas the king of Salem, and we're going to talk about him here in just a second. It doesn't say that he came out. It says that he brought out. It's very different. So he's coming to gift and to bless Abram where the other king does not. And I want to do this in backwards order, Timothy, if that's okay. But you do have the king of Sodom. And he's he comes with this, this proposal. He's very blunt, um, very impolite. And everybody knows this. He says, give me the people. You can keep all this stuff. And Abram says, no deal. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And he says, you keep everything. And he swears by God, most high creator of heaven and earth. You'll notice it's the same language that he gets from Melchizedek. We're going to come back to that. He says, I swore by God, most high creator of heaven and earth. I'm not taking anything from you because if I give it to you, you're going to say, I made Abram look rich. And I can't, I'm not doing it. I am not going to. Now, Abram's very fair here. This is his love here and his fairness here. He does his allies who came with him. He says, you guys can take what you want. You talk to the king of Sodom. You take, you know, you give them their fair share, but I'm not taking anything because of my relationship with God. And so Abram, Abram's all about God. He's all about, like, right, Timothy? Like, we're talking about Abram's spirituality. What was in him when he went to war? God was. God was. God had done everything. God was who he trusted. God was on his side. God was in his heart. You're finding that out. We're finding that out. This is what is going to bless him in his life. And this is so interesting, like the, the way that this is reported and the way that the the victory is interpreted like sometimes when you read when you read the scriptures you get these little notes from the spirit um through the author that that god brought the victory or something like that or you know like little spiritual interpretations of of the battle but up to this point we haven't none of that it's abram had a strategy it worked and we don't see where god is in in the whole thing instead we're kind of led to it by this mysterious guy who who shows up and is is definitely juxtaposed with with the king of sodom 
um, and and he interprets the whole event for Abram, and um, and this is kind of how I read it at least, where uh, the Mel- Melchizedek comes, they 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 celebrate a meal, they have bread and wine, and then they, they pray together, and it's just this beautiful thing that is a king, a priest king, which signals to Christ's offices, prophet, priest, and king. And, and here's Melchizedek, and he praises and he interprets the event. He blesses Abram. He, he calls on God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And then he says that praise be to the God most high who deliver your enemies into your hands. So he tells Abram how it happened. And then Abram's response, he has, we don't get a, a vocal response. It's not a double-sided dialogue um, from Abram here. Um, in fact, I don't think Abram speaks in the whole account, does he? Instead, Abram give, puts his amen on that by giving the first tithe uh, in the Bible. So he gives he gives a tenth, which is really, really interesting. So now we know that God was working through it all. And Abram says amen to it. Yeah. So how do you, how do you, um, now a couple things. One is, and this is, I'm going to entrust this to our listeners' med- meditations, but here we have the first tithe in the Bible. This is before, um, the Levitical law that commanded it, which is really interesting to think about. Um, the value of, um, giving a tenth to God. Um, you know, I'm entrusting that to people's meditations. It's a way of putting your amen on uh, the victory in life that God has, has given you. Um, what I want to lean into here is uh, this incredible blessing. <laughs> uh, Luther imagines, and probably not wrongly, that this is actually a summary of the sermon that was given just a summary. Um, and he imagines that uh, the king of Salem, Sodom, or the king of Salem, rather, Jerusalem, the king of peace, um, came. And the, also, by the name, by the way, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. <laughs> oh, thinking man. About this. Jesus. The, Come on. Know. Come on, people. The nail-pierced uh, hands and the empty tomb are all over. Come on. <laughs> he comes out, and he he preaches this sermon in front of the king of Sodom and whoever's with him. And he gives this confession. And it is, a, I, I, want to, I want to point out a number of things about it. First of all, it is a high, if I could call it this, this is a high monotheistic confession. Why do you think it's God most high? Because there is no other God. Why is it God as creator? There is no other God. This is the only God. And so Melchizedek's coming out and saying, there's only one God. And he is the creator of heaven and earth. So that's the first thing I want to point out about it. Here's the second thing I want to point out about it. This is incredibly empowering to Abram. Incredibly empowering to Abram. How do we know that? Because right after this, he says, king of Sodom, you can have it all. I want to give glory to God. So this is incredibly, incredibly empowering. Look, I want. Let me put it like this: If we want to be more generous in our lives, if we want to be more courageous in our lives, what do we have to know? We have to know a couple key truths. The first is this: Who God is. God is the Maker of heaven and earth, and there is no other. There's no army that can take us out. There's no trouble that can take us down. Nothing. He's their God, and he's our God, too. Who can be against us? You know, we start mm. going Apostle Paul. Yeah. Who can mm. be against us? What you, in other words, what we have, when you take the first article of the creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, that's what this is. <laughs> Don't you see it? And then you take, I believe in Jesus Christ. I, you know, there's no enemy that's going to oppress me. <laughs> right? Not sin, not death, not the devil. I've Come been on. set free. 
-hmm. Rise up, Christian. See, when God places this gospel, this is what this is. This is a massive gospel for you. This is who God is for you. When God places this, this is incredibly liberating in our lives. This is what allows us to be Navy SEALs. You talked about it before. How can we go and give our lives away? Well, because we're going to live again. <laughs> <laughs> why can we give our stuff away? Because we can't outgive God. That's why. So Abram gets this incredible preaching of the gospel. And Timothy, he responds to it. This is what makes him the father of our faith. And now this is the last thing I want to say about the third thing. You already started doing it. And good for you. <laughs> I don't know who, what you're referring to. But go who's ahead. the true king? Like, who's the true king of Salem? Who's the true king of peace of Jerusalem? Who's the true? Who's who, it, it belongs to David? And who's David's greater son? And now we go to Hebrews. We can do Psalm 110. Who is the true priest king? Who is the king? Like, I'm trying to prompt faith a little bit here now. Like, who who is the king um, who not only brings out bread and wine to bless you, but he, he lays down his life to let you know that God, the maker of heaven and earth, is for you. Who does that? Who comes like who comes out of Jerusalem and says, It's me. God loves you. Come on. This is so good. <laughs> it is. It's it's so amazing and so in, empowering. Like, well, you, you know, honestly, like that's what the writer of the Hebrews does. Like he's he's reading this and he's like, Oh wow. <laughs> he's he's meditating on this and all he can see is Jesus. He disappears. He never dies. He's he's got this eternal priesthood. He's a king. He, um, like, it's Jesus. Of course, this, this is this helps us to see Jesus better. He's got he's got a different priesthood and a different lineage. It's this isn't Aaron. This isn't these aren't the Levites who have failed us to to bring us to God. This is it's Melchizedek, right? It's Jesus Christ. And um, I, I have this picture in my mind of, of Melchizedek. And he's got his arm, maybe he's got his hand on Abram's head, speaking these words. And you were mentioning how empowering that is. And what if, what if Jesus was saying that? Blessed be, you know, insert your name by my father who has made everything blessed be god who has delivered all your enemies into your hand you know like how do you respond to that like we're you have to think about that do you respond with bravery do you respond with steadfastness to god and a generous uh, offering you know like these are, this is what we're invited to think about I, I have just one last comment, Timothy, is like, I, I, I guess what, what's in me is like, what rises up in my heart is uh, fight. Fight does. Everybody, like everybody listening to this, um, even you and I talking right now, like we have our fight. And uh, it could be a fight for love somewhere in your life, a fight for courage in your life a fight against this, a fight against that. And, and this is what gives us feistiness, is we know that God, the creator of heaven and earth, God the Son, um, who doesn't let a single enemy defeat us, um, this is what gives, gets us feisty. There's a band called Rent Collective, and they've got some great poetry about this. It says, Christ, Christ is the fire in us that cannot be tamed. And they even have this line that, you know, I think about, it's very stirring. We are defiant in his name. And you just, I mean, go pull that up, you know, um, no shame, no guilt, no sin, no, like I'm doing it. Like fight Christian, rise Christian. You can't lose Christian. Christ is going to bless you Christian. Live. 
fight. Love. I'm done. If you are moved and you want to support this ministry, please go to www.thenotablepodcast.com.